Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Thanks hey, for having Michael. us. So I'm actually very interested to talk to you guys about loneliness because um, earlier today I was talking to David Siegel, who's the CEO of Meetup, which arranges meetings and conferences. It's the largest website and platform for arranging meetings. And he was telling me in his discussions with CEOs and companies, because they also do corporate meetings for Google and so on, the number one thing they're noticing is loneliness as a driver for corporate decisions. Now, in your work, you've identified that. So I'm going to call on Ryan first. Now, what are the big themes and trends we're seeing here? Why is loneliness today an issue that companies want to respond to? Yeah, it's really fascinating because we haven't, humanity as a whole has not wanted to talk about loneliness. And that's actually stretched yes. into researchers too, where we just have not uh, unpacked this topic. And so it took a global pandemic to finally pull the curtain back to where folks are actually ready to start talking about it. And uh, through our global research of over 2000 global workers, we found that 72% of workers say they experience it at least monthly, with 55% saying at least weekly. And it's up the ladder, right? It's uh, CEOs to folks in the middle of the organization to folks entry level, it's impacting all of us. And it, if you're lonely or you're feeling disengaged, you're seven times less likely to be engaged at work, five times more likely to miss work, and you're twice as likely to think about uh, leaving your employer. So it is becoming very top of mind for a lot of folks. And, you know, never, never mind all the physical and yeah. mental health ramification it has to our health. So <clears throat> that's why it's becoming very top of mind and not surprising to hear your conversation uh, where folks are in, and senior leaders are trying to figure out how do we address this, especially as more and more of the workforce is remote. And are you seeing the same things, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because COVID has put a massive spotlight on loneliness because everyone's starting to feel yes. it a bit more. However, pre-COVID in 2018, there was some research done that found that 61% of American adults reported that they are lonely. And that was up 7% from the research that they did in 2018. So this is not something that's new. This isn't a COVID problem. This has been something that has been impacting lots of people for lots of years. Uh, and to Ryan's point, now the curtain's been pulled back and we're actually able to have a conversation about it. Do you feel that companies actually will do something about it? Oh, it's just a nice talking point these days. Because I do get a sense that CEOs seem to want to talk about these things because that's what they feel the audience wants to hear. But are they taking concrete steps? We hope so. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating as you start looking at loneliness to lessen it amongst, you know, whether it's with yourself or a team yeah. or inside a whole organization, it doesn't take much effort. It just takes some intentionality. Psychologists would call it pro-social behaviors. Okay. So, and, and it even, uh, research says in a two-person interaction, loneliness can be lessened in as little as 40 seconds. 
So we're not talking about creating, you know, large sweeping change and yes. convincing a lot of leaders and doing all this stuff. It's just, it starts with you, whoever's listening, right? It just starts with you uh, taking some intentional actions. And the first and foremost thing that we got to do, it's, it's awareness. That, that's what a therapist or a counselor would tell you, right? Awareness is curative. So we first got to be aware of uh, what the issue is. Uh, and understand how it's impacting all of us, and then just grab hold of a few tools um, that we can use every day to start picking away at the problem. And Michael, I'll, I'll yes. lean into your question a little bit more. You know, we started our research before COVID hit, and yes. the genesis of our research came from a statistic that Ryan found when he was writing his book on Gen Z. And in his book, The Gen Z Guide, he came across this statistic that said 75% of Gen Zers feel lonely uh, somewhat regularly. And that statistic really caught him off guard. And as we started to discuss it, it caught me off guard because that's the majority of a very important generation that is flooding into the workforce. And as we started to do a lot of the future of work stuff we do with our clients to prepare them for emerging professionals coming into the different roles that they're coming into, we said, you know, we should probably figure out what we should be working with our clients on so they can understand what it's like to have a lonely workforce in play. So we created our program called Lessening Loneliness and Boosting Belonging right before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic really started to ramp up, we pitched it to all of our clients and we've never had an appetite for a program like we did with that one. So to your question of, you know, are companies listening? Are they trying to do things? Are they actually taking steps in the right direction? You know, from what Ryan and I have been doing, the answer is a resounding yes. You know, we've been brought in to have lots of conversations, yeah. but it's been interesting, Michael, because even though they're interested to talk about what we're talking about with loneliness and belonging in the workplace, we've had several clients ask us to change the name of the event from lessening yeah. loneliness to something else because they're nervous that people are not going to show up. They're not going to be interested in talking about a sensitive topic. So while there's movement in the right direction, we still have a ways to go. Wait, so I'll throw this out to both of you guys. Why is loneliness such a taboo topic? I mean, at the, at face value, it's, it, it, it feels very so harmless. It's a harmless topic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, the overwhelming sense is that if you feel lonely, it's it's on you, right? There's a there's yes. something wrong with you that other people are uh, are yes. removing themselves from you. So it's it's very shameful. And one of the the things we're hoping to, to do with conversations like this is to destigmatize it because it is a universal human condition. We all experience it, um, and then it's certainly not shameful. It's a signal. It's just like hunger, right? When when you feel hunger, that's your cue to eat something. Same thing if you're experiencing loneliness that's your cue to connect with somebody. It's our, it's literally wired into us because we are built to connect with one another. And we've got to hold on to that more than ever before, because there's so many things happening in our world that are pulling us apart. It's easier to drift into isolation now. And so we've got to start fighting for it. And that's, uh, that's again, why we're, we love having conversations like this. Well, this is interesting what you said, because I never thought about it before like that. You're saying that People think incorrectly that if I'm lonely, for example, I've tried to make connections, but I failed. So I should feel some shame that I couldn't overcome that barrier. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Mm. And what happens, unfortunately, you'd think if someone's feeling lonely, they would yes. automatically just go out and forge a connection or be yes. extra mindful of, hey, I need to spend more time with the people in my life that, you know, their company I enjoy and I got to just like if I'm hungry, I grab an apple. If I'm lonely, I got to go make sure I connect with someone. 
that's not what happens. What happens is they retreat further into isolation and it's almost an embarrassment where they're so kind of caught up in the feeling of being lonely uh, or they've felt like I've been rejected so many times or I get the sense no one's interested in communicating with me or I've tried and I failed with forging the types of connections I want that they kind of go further into their cave of loneliness um, and it just compounds upon itself. And that's one of the reasons why the kind of global view, the stereotype of loneliness is one of, of shame. And it's almost this idea that you're unloved or unwanted or undesirable. And that's just not the case. So what you're saying, Steve, the correct way to think about it, if I had to choose an analogy, is like if I put my hand on a hot plate I'd feel pain and I'd take it away. So loneliness is like a warning for something you need to avoid, right? Yeah, I mean, the reason we feel lonely is because it's our biological cue to be one with the tribe, right? So many, many, many years ago, we realized as a species, we're not stronger, we're not faster, and we're not more ferocious than our very dangerous predators. The only way for us to take down a woolly mammoth, right, and forge a new pair of warm, fuzzy slippers is to be one with the tribe. And we learned that a tribe can protect the food source, we can hunt together, they can watch the children, they could protect our resources. And when we were a part of a tribe, essentially, we were safe. And we knew that if we were banished from a tribe or if we lost our tribe, our chance of survival plummeted. And one of the reasons why through some of the really interesting brain research that's been done lately, they found that the neural network for feeling physical pain overlaps with the part of the brain that registers loneliness. And the reason that our brain essentially is responding to loneliness in the same way it's responding to physical pain, the fight or flight, hey, you're in danger, is because we knew we had to be one with a tribe if we were going to survive. And all these years later, that hasn't gone away, right? So we still feel that even though we're not having to fight saber-toothed tigers anymore. Yeah, what you say is important because typically if we feel physical pain, we take it seriously. But if we feel emotional pain, we don't want to take it seriously. But what you're saying is physiologically, it has the same effect on us. Yeah. And Ryan, go ahead and, and fill in, because I know you have some really interesting thoughts on, on this as well. Yeah, I think we, I actually just heard a recent uh, podcast where Brene Brown was, was, was the guest and she was talking about her new book. And she recently did this massive study and she found that uh, the, av- like, um, the average person, what they get. The, the amount of emotions that they can, they really express or that they can contemplate is just three. It's mad, sad, and glad. Wow. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile, there's, you know, there's, you know, hundreds of yeah. emotions and her, 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 I guess the, the, the impetus behind her book and, and what she's trying to accomplish is to give all of us hum, humans more access to these different emotions, because once we can understand what we're experiencing or how we're feeling, we can verbalize it. We can put it into context, then we can start taking some action to, to overcome it. And so I think that's what's happening here too, is oftentimes, you know, we, we might be experiencing loneliness, but maybe we interpret it as burnout or, yes. or uh, depression or, you know, that we're fatigued. And so I think um, this conversation, you know, if we brought it and out, uh, it's really around emotional intelligence. How do we start becoming a little bit more in tune with how we're experiencing what, what things are causing us to feel certain ways and then put some more verbiage around it so that we can navigate or, uh, you know, 
communicate it clearly enough for others to then step in and to, and to help us. So how do you diagnose loneliness? Yeah. I mean, loneliness, unfortunately is a bit elusive. Yes. It's not like an employee coming to a work with a bleeding sure. appendage where you can automatically see like, Michael, you're bleeding. Are you like, are you yeah. okay? Do we need to do something yes. in order to get you help? Loneliness is elusive. However, you know, in the research, we identified 10 essentially signs that someone might be feeling lonely. So Michael, I'll just quickly go through a few of them. And then Ryan, if you want to chime in and add anything else, but the biggest sign is essentially, you know, just some kind of a shift in the normal routine of somebody on your team. That could be a cue. Sloppy work is a cue. Somebody who only talks about work is a cue because they might be embarrassed or they just aren't interested in talking about what's going on in their home life if they're not happy with their home life or they're feeling disconnected. So they only keep things very work focused. A lack of learning and development, meaning employees are not going above and beyond to learn, grow, better their skills, try new things. If they're kind of just staying status quo, that might be because they're having a gap in in the type of connections they want. And then the last one is what we call an apathetic attitude, right? They just seem to be uh, not showing up in the right spirits to work every day. Uh, Before you respond, Ryan, I just want to put in something here. Stephen, you mentioned a few minutes ago that I think it was, I can't remember the exact number. It was 70% of the Gen Z population feels lonely, but we live in one of the most connected societies in the world. So what's happening here? Yeah. So we call it the catch of convenience. You know, I'll give you a quick example. When I was growing up in the nineties, if I wanted to listen to a piece of music, I essentially had to call a friend to figure out what CD to buy. Then I would ride my bike to Tower Records. I would interact with the person behind the CD booth so I can listen to the track. I would wait in line and talk to somebody in line. I'd talk to the cashier. And then I would go to a friend's house to listen to the music together because I was like the only one who owned that CD, right? So all of those touch points of human to human interaction 25, 30 years ago were abundant. Anything I needed in life, I was essentially around other humans. Yes. Now we call it the catch of convenience because we live in an on-demand society where if I want to hear a piece of music today, all I have to do is say Alexa play. Um, if I want my food delivered, if I want to go to Starbucks, I don't have to talk to a barista. All I got to do is essentially order my coffee, walk in, pick it up, not look at anybody. And I, I get what I need. So when you look at Gen Z, which for those who might not know, it's 25 year olds and younger, um, their whole life has been a part of this catch of convenience and they're using technology in really prolific ways to have a frictionless, a frictionless lifestyle. But because things are now frictionless, the amount of exposure they're getting to each other is just not nearly the quantity of exposure we had when we were growing up. So this is almost as if we're saying a side effect of the digitization of processes, which is what we're calling convenience is this loneliness. Yeah, another way to think about it too is, and how we uh, put some context or verbiage around it is, is there's this dependency shift. You know, in the past, when information was centralized, well, oftentimes it was centralized in individuals. Now information is decentralized. So if something breaks in my house, I don't have to go across the street and ask my neighbor for a tool or if they know how to, to if they could help me, I simply yes. go to YouTube to figure out how to do it myself. 
So we're, we're becoming less and less dependent on each other and thus, you know, starting to, to, to pull us apart as well. That makes sense. I was speaking to a senior government official on the prime minister's team, economics planning team in Japan. And he was telling me that a major imperative of the Japanese government is to reduce loneliness for older uh, citizens, because as you know, the population is declining. They have to bring about more productivity amongst the older population. So you're seeing Japan doing that. I've also spoke to someone in the Chinese government who's also doing something along those lines. Why is it that in the United States, the curse of loneliness has to be a private sector response? What is the government doing about it? Yeah, there, there is government starting to step in all across the world. And I think as the conversation heats up, um, I, I, I expect more governments to step in. But I, I think, um, you know, what we like to argue specifically in our book, we, we make try to make the case that work is the most fertile ground to address yes. loneliness, because it's, there's already meaningful relationships, right? You're, you're, you're just naturally conversing with folks. Uh, yeah. You're in a state of learning. Learning has been proven to lessen loneliness. Um, there's routine. There's purpose. That's the other big thing. And I was going to jump in. We probably should have started with this, Michael, and that's my fault. Um, but defining loneliness is important, I think, in, for this conversation. And loneliness isn't the absence of people. It's the absence of connection. Yes. So you could be in a crowded room and still feel lonely. And so again, this idea of work being a great place to, to tackle loneliness is because there's so many connection points. And so there's plenty of loneliness lifelines. So I think I'm not surprised that specifically here in the US, it's starting in the private sector, but uh, I fully anticipate down the road, more governments getting involved. And Stephen, are there some concrete examples of how we can explain the benefits of tackling loneliness in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, the statistics Ryan mentioned you know, seven times uh, less likely to miss work, twice as yes. often to not think about leaving a job. Those are very tactical. There's also some really great research that came out um, from Better Up around the importance of belonging. And their research is, it's pretty staggering when you start to understand the impact. And Michael, I have a couple of statistics in front of me. So. Yes, please read them out. So this says, uh, according to some of the, the research, lonely workers, they, uh, it says they're more likely to leave because of mental health reasons with 50% of millennials and 75% of Gen Z claiming that they will leave an employer because of their mental health. It says that uh, people who feel lonely, they're more inclined to believe their work is lower quality. Mm. And if you believe your work yeah. is lower quality, obviously you are not going to be feeling fully engaged. Um, and we know from statistics at Gallup that if you're not engaged with your work, uh, disengaged employees make 60% more mistakes. Yes. So that's a big deal. And then it says that boosted uh, recruitment. So if people feel like they belong, recruitment goes up by 167% uh, because people are more likely to recommend their organization. Performance goes up by 56%. Um, with regards to the, the work that you do. And then it says engagement goes up, which leads to a 75% decrease in employee sick days. So the statistics are pretty clear, right? Like it's good for business. Yeah. If people feel like they're belonging, they feel connected, they feel a sense of purpose to their work. They're going to show up more fully and they're going to stick around for a longer period of time. 
Yeah, I also think that because it's a topic about loneliness and it's very hard to measure, it's very hard to define, it's very hard to diagnose, it's very hard to measure, people don't always understand how loneliness affects them. I know from my own career, I used to be a strategy consulting partner and I was always traveling, always going to new cities. But after having this discussion with you guys, I was thinking about how do I internalize loneliness? And I remember that I always used to want to travel on Emirates Airlines through Dubai because when you landed in the Dubai airport at two in the morning, there used to be a restaurants open. And I remember particularly there was a seafood restaurant and I always used to go there because the lady who worked there knew me. Hmm. It's an interesting thing. I modified my entire flight schedule just so I can go to this one <laughs> restaurant in Dubai because as you say, it's not that I was surrounded by people. The restaurant was pretty much empty. It's because I had a connection with her. She knew me. She would tell me about her life and talk to me. I was like the only customer there. Because one of the things we don't understand is what we do to avoid loneliness. Yeah. Well, there's a really important strategy. And Ryan can go into a bit more detail on this. But essentially is relationships don't need to be lasting to be meaningful. And oh, I like her that. story. Michael is the perfect example of that, right? You probably yeah. don't uh, have this person's phone number. Nope. You probably don't have her email address. Not I just saw at the airport. That was it. But that was enough. And we say that too enough. that loneliness is being seen through. Belonging is being seen as. So she must have just been able to see you and be excited when you were there. And just that sensation was enough for you to continue to go back to visit her. That's a very good point, Jimmy. I think that's the big thing here is because when you, I think when you're talking to employers about tackling loneliness, they're thinking, I've got to make this a daily intervention. It has nothing to do about the amount of interventions or even the word intervention. It's about a connection. Yeah, we're, and we're doing so many things already. And it's just, it's just taking a little bit extra intentionality in all the behaviors that we're already doing. Um, you know, it's maybe putting that phone down for an extra minute or two to really connect with somebody. We're taking five minutes at the start of a virtual meeting or an in-person meeting and having someone share something personal or something non-work related. There's just subtle things we can do to start cultivating that greater sense of belonging. One that really stands out for me that's helpful for you know, where, wherever folks are in an organization. And it's along the lines of, um, trying to identify um, how you contribute to, to the tribe, because that, that's what gives us a sense of belonging is that we're contributing to the tribe. And one way to do that is to identify the beneficiaries of the work, right? So try to draw a straight line to the work that you do to the person that's connected to that work that's benefiting from that work. So studies show that cooks are actually, uh, they're better cooks when they can see the person that um, yes. they're cooking their food sure. for, or radiologists will... Um, They'll diagnose or they can, they can um, read an x-ray with greater accuracy if they've seen a picture of the patient. So in our works, ourselves, we can do this or we can do it for our teams, right? Is how do we draw those lines to the people that are benefiting from our work? Because making that connection uh, can really bring more fulfillment to work, but also a greater sense of belonging. Yeah, I can also see that in my personal life because I remember once visiting a hospital because close to my house when I was living in that city and the doctors never made eye contact with you. They would come in looking at the clipboard and they would look at the clipboard and tell you what to do, but they would never make eye contact. And then there's another doctor who would always talk to you. Which doctor do you think is the one I ended up spending most time with? Yeah, yeah. The I one mean, that's looking at you. The one who just looks at me and tells me something personal. It's not even a long conversation. I just truly believe the person cares. Yeah. I, I had a really 
an interesting conversation with a client of mine and she is in Canada and during really, I think Canada is still really locked down, but during uh, some of the extreme lockdowns, the only chance she had to really go outside was to walk her dog. And she told wow. me, she said, I really have not been feeling lonely. She goes, I'm so surprised. I live by myself. I only have this dog. I haven't really been seeing people. And yet I feel good. And she said, I think it's because every day when I walk my dog, I make it a point to smile at 10 other people mm -hmm. who I pass. And yeah. she said, usually a few of those people will stop and ask how she's doing and they'll get into a little banter. And she said, I've been doing that every day since the pandemic started. And she goes, I feel really connected, even though these aren't friends and it's not family, it's not close relatives. It was those subtle micro moments of just genuine human to human interaction that allowed her to feel seen. And for her, it was enough to fight off loneliness. I can imagine how many employees leave their work because of loneliness, hoping to fill that gap somewhere else. And it's just a bad reason to leave. Yeah. And again, it's, is, is it, are they interpreting it as burnout or do they just don't feel like they're connected to the, the culture of the organization, the mission? You know, the other big thing too, is do they just lack clarity, right? If you yes. think about it, if, if you don't have, if you don't have a map and you're wandering around, you get lost. Well, what happens then you, you feel alone. <laughs> so clarity is so important when it comes to lessening loneliness. And so <clears throat> we've seen it time and time again, where folks will disengage from an organization or ultimately leave because they're just, they're not quite sure what they're doing or how they're doing is contributing to the larger or piece of the organization. And so clarity is such a big deal when it comes to, to all this. I'll just piggyback off of what you, what you asked, Michael is, you know, people are leaving essentially because they're not feeling seen. One yes. of the primary reasons for why people feel lonely and why loneliness exists in organizations is due to busyness. Mm. And I can go out on a limb and I think that most people are going to agree that we are busier than we've ever been before. And the busier we are, the less margin we have for taking quality time to connect with others. Yes. So especially now that we're virtual and people don't necessarily want to like be in interrupting the people around them and they assume, oh, they're at home with their kids and their family. So I'm sure they're probably fine socially. And that's just not the case. So if we can understand that because of our busyness, we are not looking at people, we're looking through them. It could be another reminder that, hey, we need to just take a few minutes and like be really intentional about uh, having some conversations that allow people to feel seen. We recently had a client who was a Chinese client working in a Northern European city, a lot of snow, and he's been on lockdown for 18 months. So for wow. 18 months, he's barely left the apartment. I think he's the only Chinese person in that city. So he doesn't know any Chinese people. There may be one or two, but he doesn't know them. He's never left the apartment. He's joined a new company, but he's never met his coworkers. And I remember I was talking to him once and I asked him, how are you feeling? And he was telling me, actually, I feel like, you know, taking my life. Mm. And one of the things about loneliness is we treat it like it's something dismissive, but it actually drives so much of our decision-making. And in that call, I had to basically put aside everything I was doing and give him an anchor, a reason not to take his life. Wow. And, you know, when we talk about loneliness, we often treat it like a touchy-feely thing that's dismissive, but we don't realize that when it gets to be persistent, or at least we think it's persistent and we cannot fix it, it, it really can mess up our minds. 
Ryan, do you want to talk about Maslow? Yeah, we, we, um, in, in, in our book, we, we, we challenge, um, respectfully Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. Um, and those I'm sure can remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs has identified six needs. Uh, it starts with your physiological needs, you know, food, water, shelter. And then at the top of the pyramid is self-actualization, but in the middle is, is belonging. Mm -hmm. And we thought, gosh, you know what, there, there's that, it doesn't feel like belonging is getting the proper, you know, emphasis. It's the middle middle of the, yeah. (laughs) And so, and the research proves this too. The, the longest study of adult, um, development was done by Harvard university. It's still going on. It's been going on for 80 years and which is incredible, right? That someone, they have the staff and the funds to continue this study. And they've now, um, they've, they've studied over 2000 people and they found the definitive, uh, answer without question for a long and healthy life is quality relationships. And it's a sense of belonging, right? And so, we, we wanted to come up with a new model that really puts the appropriate emphasis on belonging, because while it's not the most urgent yes. need that we have, it is the most dire to your, the, the, the story you shared there, Michael, people don't take their life because they're hungry. They take their life because they're, they feel extremely detached and, and yeah. alone. And so that's why we feel like it's, it's, it's so important to put a, an extreme emphasis on belonging. And again, back to, to work and the folks that are listening to this, we all are in a position to give a little bit more sense of belonging and work in such a great environment to experience that and to, to pull that into an organization. So we all play a role in this. And, and if, again, if we're aware of the dynamics here and a few tools, we can really make a, make a dent. Well, when we speak to our clients and they run the gamut from you know, senior vice presidents to executive vice presidents, managing directors of investment banks, senior partners in consulting firms and so on, they all tell us one thing, they actually feel lonely. They don't feel a sense of community. They feel like they don't belong to something. And that's a universal response. I always thought they'd tell me something else would be their major problem, but almost all of them will tell me that, well, it's actually, I don't feel like I'm part of something. I feel detached. I feel I'm all alone in the world. Everything I'm going through is just unique to me. I have no one to share my ideas with. I don't know who can relate to me. And what's interesting is that I didn't expect it to be the answer everyone would give me. Mm. So what do you do when you are that lonely? Because we spoke about the diagnosis, we've spoken about the definition, but let's look at it from both sides, right? So practically speaking, if I feel lonely, what can I do from my side to correct this? And then we can maybe switch gears and say, what can companies do practically? What are some of the things companies can do on Monday morning, 8 a.m. if they wanted to address this problem with the employees. But let's start with the person. What can they do? So the first thing that anybody can start doing at 8 a.m. on Monday morning is to start trading high tech for high touch. Now, what tends to happen is we're flooded with communication coming in the forms of instant messages, text messages, and emails. And we just maybe assume that I'm interacting, I'm communicating, I have sort of company within my company. But that's almost like a, a kind of a head fake of connection. Even yes. though we're communicating, we're not connecting. What we've learned in the research, right? It's the good old fashioned time tested, proven face to face or phone communication that can allow two people to really like have a moment together. So what we have to start doing on Monday mornings is we start, we have to start being mindful of what text message or email 
that I'm going to send today, can I convert into a phone call or some kind of a quick Zoom? Because the more actual communication I can create, the more opportunity for real connection. And that's a pretty quick and easy thing we can start being more mindful of, you know, on Monday. Yeah, that makes sense. It's actually very simple as well, right? This is not difficult to do. Yeah, the other, the other thing I would, um, I would chime in with is gratitude, is find ways to express gratitude. We were recently working with a, a leader who was experiencing uh, being isolated and, yeah. and lonesome. And, it, you know, that's not unusual, right? Because you think about a leader, they're, they're out in front, they're the visionaries, they're, they're trying to pull a preferred future closer to their, yes. uh, to their, to their teams and organizations. So they're out front and oftentimes can, it can be very lonesome. And what he did was he simply just, he, he turned his attention to his email box um, and he sent an email to uh, three people from his past where he, and he was just telling them about all the things he was grateful for, how they helped him in his career or personal life. And he said instantly after sending just one of those, um, he felt more connected to that individual. And so it boosted his well-being. and you, you better bet that the other person on the other side of that email felt the same way as well. So it sounds to me here as if, the way to fix this problem is you have to have a culture of caring in the company as opposed to some, you know, technical kind of intervention. I would ag agree very strongly with that. I mean, connection can only be forged when, when two people essentially prove to each other that they're interested, right? And that's why in only 40 seconds, as Ryan mentioned, we can have a restorative exchange with people if we get the sense that, wow, this person really, you know, is hanging on my words. They, they yes. really are genuinely wanting to know how I'm doing versus just sort of checking the box by saying, Hey, how was your weekend? Good. Okay, cool. Let's yeah. jump into this meeting here. You know, there's a real big difference between the intentionality of your interaction and just going through the motions. And if leaders and team members within organizations can be more intentional about really showing that they're interested you know, just that alone would make a massive difference in how people feel at work. Yeah. And it's such a simple thing. It's almost as if what we're talking about is the basic building blocks of any relationship, whether it's professional or personal, because it would apply in both situations. Yeah, it sure does. And, and back to your previous question, you know, I'm sure your listeners can, re can relate. And the healthiest organizations, they balance high performance with human dignity. Right? It's not, you don't sacrifice one for the other because then you're out of balance yeah. and no one wants to work that organization or that organization's not performing well enough to exist. So it's this tricky balance and loneliness lies at the intersection of wellness and, and inclusion. And so if, if we're addressing loneliness, um, not only are we bringing folks in where they feel part of the team, where they're going to be more loyal, um, but they can actually perform better. Back to what Stephen was talking about at the top of our time together if we can create environments where psychological safety exists, that answers the most fundamental question of humanity, which our brain asks five times per second, which is, am I safe? Yes. If we can quiet that down and if we can satisfy that human core human question, um, we're going to see people showing up to work more fully and be able to deliver for customers and clients and to show up for their teammates. So we're going to see that performance go up as well as, that the human dignity component as well. So I think that's why it's such an important topic. And we're so excited to, to move it from a soft topic to a very dire one that can actually move the needle in organizations. Yeah, I was speaking to the chief HR officer for a major investment bank. And he was telling me that pre-COVID, the entire bank strategy to retain employees was perks, bonuses, and base, right? Mm. So you give them a lot of perks, like free meals and 
town car service, you give them a big bonus and you pay them a healthy base salary. But after COVID, they realize that, hold on a second, we've got to change your entire remuneration strategy because people have realized that money cannot compensate for a loss in mental wellness. Well, Ryan, do you want to talk a little bit about the emerging generations and how they're looking at their opportunities for employment? Because while it is the most common kind of catch-all or let's just give people more money and more perks, the research that's starting to come out kind of goes against that grain pretty strongly. Yeah, we're starting to see more and more uh, employees, specifically of the emerging and younger generations, they're looking to their employers to help them fulfill some of these loftier needs. And so I'm sure listeners can relate. They're probably having conversations around mental health at work that they never thought they'd have just five yes. years ago. And, and part of what's happening there is the blend between work and life. Uh, you know, that line is all but vanished in today's hybrid and remote work uh, situations. And so we're bringing more of our personal lives into work. We're bringing more work into our personal lives. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we're looking to our employers or we're looking to the place where we spend most of our waking hours to help us with some of these, uh, these what used to be concerned or, or uh, boxed as personal issues. And so, um, yeah, so, so we're going to start looking at these things. And of course, Steve shared some of the statistics at the top, but Gen Z is hyper-focused on mental health. It's one of their top needs that they're looking to to. Uh, help with. And a lot of them are leaving employers if they don't feel like their employers helping them with mental health. So if organizations aren't talking about loneliness, they soon will, because it's extremely top of mind for the generation that is going to be the fastest growing in the workforce over the next decade. So for our audience, we have a lot of people here in senior management positions. If mental health is a competitive advantage to recruit, what do they need to do and how do they need to signal that to the marketplace that they're doing it to recruit the right kind of people? I would say one of the first thing is you need to become a loneliness looker. A loneliness yeah. looker. Wow. Yeah, you like that. What does that That's mean? A, I love that. You like that. Michael. I like okay, it. Good. So, you know, Ansel Adams, the famous photographer, has this really great line. Um, the line goes, photos are usually looked at, seldom looked into. And at work that's kind of how it feels for a lot of employees, right? Like my boss is looking at me, but not necessarily looking into me or, you know, really trying to understand where I'm at, what's going on in my life, how I'm doing, what's impacting my current state, my headspace. And for the managers and the consultants out there who really want to help create kind of a team dynamic or an organizational kind of cultural thread that will help people feel less lonely is that has to become a commitment of, of everyone. And, you know, Ryan and I are definitely not uh, believers that leaders and managers and VPs and, you know, the C-suite has to become therapists. We're not ex- expecting people to have to uh, really become experts on how to diagnose, but we are asking leaders and organizations to be more aware of the physical, mental, and emotional well-being of people at work. And I'll, I'll share a quick story. You know, a lot of the consulting work that I've done has been in mining, oil and gas, construction, and manufacturing. So in all of those industries, safety is of the utmost importance. And leaders within organizations where safety is a priority, they're taught what's called fit for duty. And fit yeah. for duty means, right, before I let you out on the line, before I let you out into our operation or onto a piece of machinery, it is my responsibility both morally 
and legally to make sure that you are ready to do that job safely, right? And if you're injured physically, or if I can tell you're distracted or you're just off, I have to step in. And this mindset of fit for duty and being aware of the, the you know, group dynamic and yes. some of the subtleties of the, ind the individual employees, we have to be paying more close attention to that if we're going to get to the end, end goal of creating more belonging in organizations. So this is a competitive advantage. If you do this, you have a better workforce, you compete in the marketplace better. It's in the interest of the company to do it. Is that what you're saying? And I would say it's never been easier in history to find new work. And if someone's not feeling seen, feeling understood, feeling contributory, feeling valued, right? All the decisions we tend to make, we make because of a feeling. So if our feelings are not being met, I, I would say yes. That's why we're, people are leaving, right? There's all these articles about the great resignation and everyone's trying to figure out really what it what is it that's causing millions of people to find new work. I'm not a statistician and I'm not a researcher who's been looking yes. into this, but I would put a lot of money on the fact that people are leaving because they don't feel cared for, right? They don't feel the way they want to feel at work. And uh, we have to start taking some of these feelings into consideration if we want to be on the, the competitive side of things. Here's a good story that might <clears throat> round things out for us, Michael. Sorry to interject here. Um, and for those folks that are outside of the U.S. that are listening, the story is about um, the Golden Gate Bridge when it was being built. The chief engineer, his name was Joseph Strauss, and this was back in 1933. Mm -hmm. And while they're building that bridge, he decided to invest to put a safety net underneath that bridge. And it was an enormous cost. No one had ever done it before. But typically, um, you know, I think the numbers were for every the bridge that was built uh, near San Francisco, I think 30 people ended up dying when they built that bridge. So he wanted to put this net underneath. And what happened when he put the net underneath? Uh, people started lining up down the street to come work because they know nope, now they even yeah. if they weren't super skilled, they knew they couldn't fail. And it was a safe environment where they could they could show up and, and get their hands dirty and get the work done. And again, it took more time to put that that uh, uh, net underneath initially but they actually were able to work faster uh, because people would fall off, bounce off the net, get right back up and start working. And they actually completed the project under budget and faster than anyone anticipated. And it was groundbreaking uh, with safety measures uh, across you know, the, the country and world when it comes to building bridges. So it's a really good analogy as it relates to creating this idea of psychological safety or creating environments where people feel like they can, they can really show up to work um, and feel safe and again, if you're, if you're creating environments where people feel, feel that and they're, they're attacking something and they're building something that's exciting, that's the greatest source of, of, of talent attraction and, and staffing anyways, the people that already work there. Um, so there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of great benefits as it relates to everything we're talking about here. That's a brilliant uh, story. I didn't know that story, but it, it's a very simple story of explaining the concept. Because I remember I once worked when I was a consultant, when I was a partner, I advised a mining company and they had a policy that if there was any incident at a mining site, or even if someone went missing and they couldn't find them, they'd shut down the entire facility because safety was so important to them. And they did it firstly to protect the individual, but also to send the signal that safety was important. Mm -hmm. So here, what we're basically saying is that safety has always been an element of how we take care of employees, but there's a new dimension we need to consider that we have not been considering for a long time. 
And if we find a way to address it and signal, as you say, to employees that we will take care of their mental safety, then why wouldn't people want to work for us? It seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and that's just that's what we've always done, right? We, as humanity, we come together uh, with our peers and we we solve problems. And we've been doing that, and so now this is a new problem that surfaced, and so now we're going to band together to figure out how to uh, how to solve it. And it's so much about if if we know better, let's do better. I like that because you know one of the problems with the discussion on loneliness is it's treated almost as if it's an emotional feeling only. And the worst thing that can happen is you'll feel bad. But as we spoke about earlier, it has a similar similar physiological response to actual physical pain. So to wrap up here, what do you think would be sort of the top two or three things the listeners need to keep in mind as they try to self-diagnose this? Because I think that's going to be the hardest part. How do I know I'm lonely versus burnt out or just tired of my job? Is there any pointers for them? Yeah, I would say, you know, a big first step is to don't beat yourself up. Um, yeah. And if you're not sure if it even is loneliness, that's okay. I would just be, you know, um, assume it is loneliness and try to go establish a connection. Because even if you're not, you don't wrestle with loneliness to a chronic degree, um, still connecting with other people boosts our well-being, and so um, it would just be a good thing to do anyway. Um, so, but also to start having the conversation. I'm sure many of your listeners are probably leaning in because, and, and Steve and I have experienced this firsthand over the two years that we've been studying this and talking to people about loneliness. Every time people lean in because everyone has a story. We all experience it because it's a universal human condition, and so talking about it tends to half the burden of it. Right? We start to normalize it and say, yeah, I've experienced that. I've experienced that. Well, what did you do? Here's what I've done. Um, so this idea of don't beat yourself up, it's, it's not shameful. It's a signal and start to have these conversations and use this podcast as an excuse. Say, hey, listen to this really interesting podcast about loneliness. What's been your experience with that? And that opens the door. Conversation could be had. But Steve, what else? What other thoughts might you have? Yeah, a couple of other things. One is, you know, Ryan and I, we created an entire business called lesslonely.com. And there's a free assessment yes. where people can take three minutes and self-diagnose. So if yeah, actually of like that's a good thing. I've yeah, seen if it. any of the listeners are out there, you know, feel free to go check that out and you'll have a pretty good quick analysis on how well you're doing. But the second part is one of the most devastating statistic statistics that we came across in the research was comparative 20 years ago to today. So 20 years ago, um, a, a poll of audience was were asked, how many confidants do you have in your life? Yes. And the most common answer was three. Okay. When asked recently, the most common answer was zero. Zero. Not the average. Wow. Zero. The most common. Meaning that the majority of the people said, I don't have anybody. Like not one person who I feel like is yes. really a confidant that I can go to and, and turn to with, with a lot of confidence. So if people are starting to wonder, like, yeah, am I into this demographic of 72% of feeling lonely, I would start to look at the relationships you have, because you don't need an army of really close contacts, but you do need a couple of people who can be a part of that kind of confident squad that you can turn to when you need things. Um, and that could be a quick way to kind of just go through the list of people in your life and diagnose, you know, are these people truly 
uh, people that I connect deeply with, or are all these just very, you know, kind of superficial high level connections that aren't giving me what I need of sustenance. I want to pull up one of the things you said earlier, because I think it's maybe the most important thing here. When I asked, how do you self-diagnose? You said that it doesn't matter if you self-diagnose because you should take the actions to build these connections. And I think that's the important thing because I don't want the audience getting stuck in their mind about how do I self-diagnose? How do I know I'm really lonely? It doesn't matter because building connections can only be better for you, right? And Michael, you talked about the health ramifications. So we put up um, in our social feed, basically a warning label, like you know, mm-hmm. you'd see on a pack of cigarettes. And essentially it says if loneliness had a warning label, it would say, and it lists all of the different side effects. But what happens is when people feel lonely, their body's in a, a fight or flight stress state. And yes. we know that high stress creates a lot of problems. So yes. loneliness is tied to cardiovascular problems. It's tied to different types of uh, mental decline. It's tied to a whole queue and list of really, really scary health ramifications. So yeah, this isn't just, oh, I'm kind of feeling lonely, not a big deal. I'll brush it off. You know, if you get into a state of chronic loneliness, your body's really paying for it. Yes. And I mean, it's it's not just at a company level. As the examples we discussed earlier, it's geopolitics as well, where countries are figuring out how to respond to this. It's a competitive imperative to do something about it. So thank you so much, Ryan and Stephen. It was great to have you on the show. I think our audience is really going to like this episode. We haven't had anyone before talk about loneliness and be able to build almost like a pseudo business case behind it. I think that's what you've done very well here, where you've given the tools to think about it, but also to understand why you need to act on it. So I applaud you for the work you're doing. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Take care, guys. We'll be in touch and we'll hopefully have you on the show again soon. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.